again and welcome to Knowing God with Heart and Mind. I'm Pastor Dan and I'll be leading you through this week's virtual Bible study once again. Knowing God with Heart and Mind is a Bible study that is built around some basic assumptions. The essential one being that the Bible is God's message to humanity so that God can be known and loved by God's creation, mainly people. We believe the Bible is sufficient in and of itself so that thoughtful study of it will lead to ever-increasing intimacy with God. Now, that being said, we don't want you to use this Bible study as a replacement for participation in the life of a local church. It's important that you interact with other believers, that you worship God together to uh, celebrate God's wonder and love and amazing grace. And uh, that happens best in the local church. So be sure to regularly attend worship services. Be sure to regularly participate in the life of the church. And don't let virtual Bible study replace your uh, face-to-face Bible study with other believers. Be part of a small group that studies scripture and prays together. Be part of a Sunday school class or Bible study at church. Do all of these things, and please don't let this virtual Bible study take their place. This is a study that is offered as an addition to your life and involvement with a family of faith in a local church. Now, each week we're going to look at Scripture, we're going to engage it with tradition, and we're going to bring it to our present reality. We're going to find context, we're going to read between the lines. And uh, we're going to know God with heart and mind as we examine the passages that are found in the Revised Common Lectionary Schedule of Readings for the upcoming Sunday. As always, I am a working pastor, therefore at least one of those passages that we'll use will be part of the Sunday sermon. So if you want to get a little extra study in, then consider not only listening to this podcast and participating in your uh, personal study, but also be sure to go to CorinthUMC.com to Media and then Sermons, where you can download and listen to the latest sermon message that uh, will accompany, like I said, at least one of those readings. And uh, one's done here in the privacy of the parsonage at uh, Parsons Prairie, And the other is done with the congregation on Sunday mornings. It is a windy day here at Parsons Prairie. We are experiencing an early spring, and this this early spring has come in like a a lion. It's uh, definitely not ready to go out like a lamb yet. We've had all kinds of uh, strong winds and sustained winds of 40 to 60 miles an hour. And and on our piece of prairie, a wind that gets a chance to move across the flat that fast doesn't have much to break it up. So there have been a few occasions here in the parsonage where the bursts of wind have shaken the house a little bit and given us all a bit of a start. And yet, it's well built and it continues to stand. I watch out the window and see my chickens over there in the chicken coop. And, of course, 
you know, I have a bit of a reputation for being a chicken whisperer. I'm not sure I want that reputation, but it seems to have fallen upon me. So let me tell you a little story about my chickens. You know, you can learn a lot about people from chickens. And the Parsons Prairie chickens have taught me an important lesson or two over the years. Now, recently, we got some new chickens brought into the fold as the older ones became unproductive and uh, we ended up running a kind of uh, retirement home for chickens. Uh, you know, nobody around Parsons Prairie wants to kill and eat them when they don't make eggs anymore. So you farmer people and country people, you can be appalled at that. And those of you who are uh, less inclined to think too much about where your food comes from, well, you can be appalled that we would have even considered killing and eating those chickens. But hey, this is life on Parsons Prairie. And you know, we're surrounded by country folk and farm fields and uh, a lot of people around here wonder why we don't eat those chickens when they stop laying eggs. And all I can say is, is well, because they kind of become our friends too. So, if a person can be accused of having pet chickens, I guess it's me. Go figure. One of the lessons we've learned recently about the, uh, uh, the, the nature of things from our chickens happened when these new chickens came in. We didn't, uh, of course, have eggs for a while because when you get baby chicks, it takes a while for them to develop and to mature into uh, the adult ability to lay eggs. And uh, one of the things you notice when you're raising uh, baby chicks into laying hens is you begin to see the the uh, pecking order that you've heard so much about. You begin to see the little society of things that uh, exists in the chicken pen. And you can be sure that more often than not, there's a bully in the chicken coop. There's always a bully in the chicken coop. And the funny thing is, is that bullies are usually picking at each other and they're usually preying on the particularly weak and uh, sometimes worse. I'll tell you what I mean. We had a bully in the chicken pen that uh, was without a doubt the worst bully I've seen yet in the chicken pen. This chicken not only picked on the other chickens, but when they all started laying eggs, this particular one would destroy the other chicken's eggs. Now, it took us a while to figure this out, but as we were examining the, uh, uh, the chicken's uh, beds where they laid their eggs, we, we kept noticing that there were smashed egg parts and yolks and things, and we were pretty sure that our chickens had started laying because for a while we had seen lots of egg production. And then it seemed to just altogether stop. Now, one time when I went to check for eggs, I noticed that the bully liked to run up the ramp into the uh, little laying room that we have built into the chicken pen and the chicken house. And uh, I noticed that she came up there and went straight to the place where most of the chickens lay and started pecking at the remains of the eggs that she'd already destroyed. In fact, she was pecking at me, too. It began to seem clear to me that this was a chicken who was pretty sure that that was her chicken pen, her chicken coop, and uh, her laying room. And by golly, even me, the master, the one who feeds them and gives them everything they need, well, I wasn't even welcome in there. So I acted on my suspicions, and along with my bride, we 
managed to capture the culprit, or at least the one I was pretty sure was guilty, and we took that chicken and put her in isolation. Now, she was still able to interact with the other chickens, but she couldn't get to them or their eggs. And you wouldn't believe how quickly peace was restored to the chicken coop. Even though she was still there, even though she was still barking at the other chickens, she had been nullified in such a way that she could no longer hurt them and she could no longer destroy what they produced. And within a day or two, we started seeing a rapid increase in egg production. And before long, we would go out every day to collect five or six eggs and uh, even experience an occasional egg from the chicken with the bad attitude. Now, at some point, the chicken with the bad attitude started getting really angry and really frustrated. And we didn't really want to torture it or punish it or anything, but at the same time, as long as it was laying eggs, we just kind of figured, well, you know, she can lay an egg. She just can't be around the other chickens. So as long as she's producing something of value, we'll keep feeding her and providing her with shelter and taking care of her. And she wasn't so isolated from the others that she couldn't spend time with them. She just wasn't allowed to peck at them or hurt them anymore. And this seemed to work for a while, but then we began to notice that she was now destroying her own eggs. Now she would just peck her own eggs to pieces before we could get them. It was as though she was saying, if I can't be in charge of the chicken coop, if I can't rule over those others, if I can't peck at you and I don't like your intervention, then I guess I'm not even going to let you have the egg that I lay from time to time. And with that, we pretty well decided that there wasn't much reason to keep her fed and protected. Now, this is, again, where some of us are going to be really put out with this, and others may just say, well, that's country life, because... Uh, one night, I just decided to leave her isolation chamber open. She was in a separate pen by herself and was safe and secure and fed. And I just decided it was time to start leaving that open and let her fend for herself. And uh, for a long time, that wasn't a big deal. But then one day, she just decided that she'd had enough of us. And she marched down the backyard and across the field and just cast the dust of this pathetic little excuse for chicken housing uh, off of her feet and marched off into the prairie, never to be seen again. Now, this is a true story. I'm not making this up. Tell me, if you don't agree, there's a life lesson there somewhere. Well, we're in the middle of the season of Lent now, and we are moving through the passages of the Revised Common Lectionary that are specifically appointed to the season of Lent, and uh, there's, a, there's something for us to learn in each of these readings, and uh, I am convinced uh, beyond the shadow of a doubt that God has worked through the creation of the Revised Common Lectionary in much the same way God has worked through those uh, editions of scripture that continue to be a part of our lives throughout uh, the world. Uh, sometimes people will say, well, how do you know that your New International Version of the Bible, your English Standard Version of the Bible, or your King James Version is is uh, entirely accurate or, or entirely uh, approved uh, by God? Well, 
I'll tell you one of the simplest ways that I can describe it, and that is that it just seems like the good versions continue to stick around and the bad versions have a way of disappearing. You might go back to that story I told you about the King Henry Bible, King Henry VIII Bible. Um, so when I uh, look at things like the uh, lectionary or when I look at the uh, United Methodist Church, which I'm a part of, and I look at the other mainline denominations, and I look at the many versions of Christianity that are out there, it seems like whenever people are mostly in touch with the Spirit of God and mostly in touch with God, God seems to bless them, even if amongst them there are those who really don't get it or are perhaps in some way uh, even guilty of being against the church. It's a little bit like my chicken story, I guess. But the main thing that I would like for us to consider right now is that if you are seeking God, if you're looking to know God with heart and mind, then this is as good a way as any for God to reach you. And it really isn't necessary to disregard it because of a source that you consider somehow tainted. Uh, it isn't necessary for you to, to, uh, to try to overthink it. Let's give God all that is due God. Let's assume for a moment that if each of us individually has taken the care and the concern to seek the Holy Spirit and to be obedient to God, that somehow God's going to push through all of the world's evils and all of the clouds and fog that are put out there to confuse us by the enemy. And let's just assume that God will reach out to those who reach out to God. And in that respect, I'm confident that whatever passages we choose to read together and talk about together are of God's purpose for us today. Can I get an amen? Now, let's begin with today's first reading. This one from the Old Testament. The reading is Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Today we're reading Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. 
For the Lord is great, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, They are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declare, I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Let us pray. Loving and caring God, we come this morning in hope, hope that will sustain us in our trying times, our lonely times, our doubting times. Refresh us this day, as with the living water of your presence and love. Open us to the possibilities of friendship, the possibilities of encountering you in unexpected ways, the possibilities of seeing the miraculous in everyday life. Amen. reading from Exodus shows us a side of Moses that we'd be, we've become familiar with because it is not unlike Moses at times to cry out in frustration to God. And uh, what do we see him doing today? Saying, what do I do with these people? <laughs> what a fascinating question. If you've ever been in charge of or charged with guiding a group of people in some way, if you've been responsible for a group of rugged individuals who all have their idea of what's right, and and if you've ever had uh, uh, to try to move them all in a similar direction for a greater good than the sum of their opinions, well, then you can understand how Moses felt. What shall I do, Moses cries out. What shall I do, the pastor cries out. What shall I do, the committee chairman cries out. What shall I do, the parent cries out. And so it goes. All too often, this is the cry that we hear in church. Because it just seems like there's always this this struggle against the history that informs us of God's faithfulness and the fear of the unknown in the future. It seems that no matter how many times we've seen God pull us through, we still have difficulty believing that God will continue to pull us through. And what's worse is that we find ourselves so ready to lay the burden of responsibility for the things we don't like on people we don't like, instead of admitting that when we are delivered by God, we sing God's praises, and when we're not delivered by God in the way that we would like, we need to just go ahead and be angry with God. It's funny how we turn our wrath on people whenever we are disappointed with God. It's funny how we give people qualities in our mind that make them equal to or greater than God. 
And so here is the case where Moses is leading the people, and they've seen God's power over and over again. They've seen the incredible miracles that God has done in their midst. But when they get a little thirsty and it doesn't feel like they're going to get what they want when they want it, they're right after old Moses. They're down on Moses as big as they can be. They are going to give Moses no quarter at all. They are so frustrated with Moses. And so they threaten to stone him, or at least that's what he thinks is coming. And that's when God says, Moses, go stand in front of them and let's just show them God's power. And let them remember that you are not their God. I am their God. You are not the one responsible for their safety, for their well-being, for the vitality of their organization, but I am. And if they are afraid of the future, then they need to take it up with God. And so as they traveled throughout the nations, around the wilderness, I should say, they found themselves constantly tested and, frankly, there was a whole generation that simply couldn't let go of their lack of trust. And they were allowed to die off before the rest could enter the promise. This is a reality that happens in churches. And uh, it's something that you can witness pretty regularly. There are so many churches where people have become so comfortable with the way things have always been that they simply refuse to... Uh, acknowledge that change is happening, happening in their mirrors, happening in their homes, in their families, happening in their communities, and happening in their church. We all fear change. We all wish that we could keep change from happening simply because it makes us uncomfortable, because it makes us have to put faith in the unseen and the unknowable, which lies ahead of us. We'd rather go back to the known things that lie behind us. So when the people cry out, we'd rather have gone back to Egypt. They know better than that. But at least in Egypt, they knew the story. They knew what things were like. But had they gone back to Egypt, they would have found a land that could no longer sustain them the way that it once did. You really can't go backwards, and we all know that. And so we have no choice but to move forward in faith and to trust that God will provide the water exactly when we need it, and in such a way that God must get all the glory and praise, just as it should be. Perhaps that's what the psalmist means in Psalm 95. Now, this is a psalm that most likely refers to the Feast of Tabernacles, one of those occasions when the people would have come from far-flung places back to Jerusalem, to the temple. And in their joy, they would have sung the songs of the psalmists, that uh, celebrated their victories in the past. And not so much their victories, but God's victories for them. And this is a great example in, in our Psalm 95, where we hear them singing about the lessons they learned at Meribah and uh, the trouble that they were in. And so the songs were a wonderful way of reminding people of fundamental truths, you might remember in the introduction, I always tell you that you shouldn't just do this virtual Bible study, that you should be a part of a worshiping congregation. This is one of the critical reasons why, because the Bible tells us 
that the fullness of our relationship with God is dependent on the things that we share with others in our worship and our uh, experience of God as a shared experience. You go to church and we sing songs that remind us of the fundamental truths about who God is. And uh, we go and we remember the stories that define us and define God and how our relationship with God works. We go there to pray together about those things that seem bigger than we can handle even in our own prayer. And that's the point. And so the psalmist reminds us that one of the ways in which a person grows in their faith and in their relationship with God is to recall those things in the past that we saw faithfully through God's eyes. We saw the faithfulness of God. Looking back to the past, can you think of times when you thought your case was bad, when your situation was dire, and then you survived it, and then it worked out okay? You might even be tempted to give something or someone other than God the credit. But ask yourself, would that person or that situation that took your burden away have happened if God had not willed it? Think back on the times when your faith was rewarded, as little as it was, with God's deliverance. And then remember it. And tell that story to your children. Discuss it with your loved ones. And uh, share it in your small group or at church. Because this is how you grow your faith. And it has been the right way since the earliest days of God's relationship with God's people. Our gospel reading today is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 5 to 42. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon, and when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. A Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to, give, uh, have to keep coming here to get water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say that you have no husband. 
The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, and we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called the Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what are you doing? What do you want? Why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. May God add blessing to the hearing of his word. Well, this week's pastoral pontification will definitely have some uh, interesting nuances. You know, as we listen to the Apostle Paul's words, we see that uh, there are basically two purposes in his writing. First, he wants us to hear what a wonderful thing it is to be a Christian, to be justified by faith in Christ. But it's so much more than just a guarantee that we'll go to heaven when we die, which is certainly great news and should take away all of our fear of death. But he's also trying to tell us what the many blessings are of living that faith until we die. He wants us to understand that this justification is a lasting thing and that uh, 
in particular, those Jews who were listening to him could have this uh, spiritual experience that would last and not require continual renewal by way of the ritual sacrifices through the law. And so what Paul wants us to understand in this particular case is that uh, there's meaning to everything that happens in our lives. Now, I hear people say all the time, even quoting it in a sort of prophetic way from some faithful loved one of theirs, that there's a reason for everything, that God has a purpose in everything. And I think that is partially correct. I think that God makes meaning in everything. I believe that whatever happens to us, should we give it over to God's care, God will put purpose in it. That God will make us better or bless us in some way that serves God's holy purposes in every situation. But the truth is, is I don't think everything happens for a reason. I think that you could at least say that there is a cause and effect, but sometimes the cause is sin. Sometimes the cause is uh, the natural, self-destructive uh, nature of things. This uh, this uh, uh, entropy thing that came into the world after sin, and uh, this is why, unfortunately, the child dies. This is why disease comes and ravages people. This is why the storms come and the houses are destroyed by a tornado. This is, this is why there is this evil in the world that is sort of nameless and you can't exactly point your finger at someone and say it's your fault or this is and this this is why I don't want us to be tempted to think that there's a cause and effect about everything. The truth is is God can make meaning out of everything that happens in our lives, but that doesn't mean that some of the things that happen in our lives are uh somehow purposeful in the fact that they happen in the first place. It might just be that we live in a fearful, fallen world where evil prevails because God's plan of redemption is not entirely complete. And therefore, sometimes we are victims of the evils of this world, whether they be natural disasters or the deeds of evil people. And we have to push through it with faith. We have to have confidence that our Lord is at work even when bad things are happening around us and to us. And so what Paul wants us to understand is, is that in every event of our lives, we're still justified. That nothing is going to undo the fact that Jesus has saved us from the wrath and punishment that we justifiably deserve. And this is why we can claim justification through Christ. That is to say, we can stand before our judge, the Lord God, and say, I have no defense. I am guilty, apart from the fact that Jesus gives me justification. The only justification I have for asking you to let me into heaven. The only justification, God, that I have for asking you to put the crown on my head and make me a co-heir with Christ is because of Christ. It is the only justification that I trust in Christ. We're justified by faith. Now, when Jesus tells this woman at the well that he can give her 
eternal life or waters that uh, that take care of her thirst forever. Of course, he's speaking metaphorically, but he's also giving her an understanding of what it means to have the eternal life that only he can give. He's giving her a foretaste of what we can all anticipate. And that is that he would give us eternal life. Now, that doesn't mean our bodies don't grow old and weary and die. It doesn't mean that our bodies can't be damaged beyond repair by disease or accidents. But it does mean that the very essence of who we are, our soul, that part of us that is in relationship with God through Christ, that has become eternal because of Christ. And in that respect, we don't need to fear death, at least as a complete and utter end to our existence. In fact, we can look forward to an existence beyond the life of this body. Like when Jesus tells the thief on the cross, cross today you'll be with me in paradise. And in the same way, we can look forward to being with him in paradise when we die. Well, that's reason enough to celebrate, but there's so much more to it. Jesus has offered us much, much more. Look at this woman. She is at the well around noon by herself, most likely because it was a time when none of the good girls in town were there getting the water for their daily chores, which probably would have happened earlier in the day. We don't know for sure if that's exactly what's going on, but it seems plausible. We know that this woman has had a colorful lifestyle of multiple relationships, but we also know that she knows her Bible. and She grew up in church. And so we need to give her credit for recognizing certain truths as soon as they came out of Jesus' mouth. But there was a need for restoration in her life. There was a need for corrective action so that not only would she have the eternal life that Jesus was offering her, but she would have an abundant life as she knows life in this time. Jesus says to her, I know you've had five husbands. I know you're living with the guy that you're with now. And uh, I know that you need to put the sin behind you. Stop acting selfishly about uh, things that concern your own personal fulfillment and uh, your good feelings, you know. Um, Don't just satisfy the flesh. Take care of the soul. And so Jesus offered her something far more than eternal life. He gave her a reason to have an entirely new life. There's another lesson in that gospel story. In fact, that story is very, very rich with meaning so that I can't even begin to talk about everything that I could do with that story. But uh, one of the things that really jumped off the page to me today was the true nature of evangelism or evangelizing, you know? Um, when Jesus informed her that he was the Messiah, she dropped everything and she went and told her friends that she felt that she had probably just met the Messiah. And uh, she brought them to him. She didn't try to win them over with her testimony. She simply said what had happened to her. And in her, they witnessed such a change that they were compelled to investigate this Jesus. When they investigated Jesus, they discovered for themselves that this is the Messiah. In fact, 
her role doesn't seem to be that important at the end because they say, you know, at first we went to see him because you said that you thought you might have found the true Messiah. But we stuck with him because we found the Messiah. See, when we want to tell other people about God and our love for God and the way that God has loved us back by saving us through Christ and enlivening us with the Holy Spirit, one of the things that we've got to realize is, is that we really don't have to work that hard. We just need to be different. We need to be different because we've been renewed, we've been regenerated, we've been made over by God through our justification and uh, the beginnings of sanctification. The Holy Spirit is beginning a process of changing our nature. We are sort of morphing from caterpillars to butterflies, from tadpoles to full-grown frogs. I mean, that's a terrible analogy, but you know, it's also acceptable. What is Christ doing in you that the people around you cannot mistake as transformation? And is that saying more to the people around you than anything you could invite them to, like a program at church, or to get a free mug when they show up at church, or to get a t-shirt for helping with something? You know, those are all fine things, and there's nothing wrong with them. And People are certainly motivated by generous gifts of love, but, but what are you inviting them to, if not to a transformed life because of your new birth in Christ? Now that you can't tell them about. They just have to see it. And when they see it, you point them toward Jesus. And when they encounter the living Christ, when the Holy Spirit does the true work of the evangelist, then they will confess for themselves, He is Lord. Well, I hope you've been blessed today by this brief offering and a few anecdotes from Parsons Prairie. I hope my opinions and some of my more colorful statements won't put you off of coming back to see us again. Remember, the best way to really get the most out of this experience is to use it as a motivation for personal interaction with other believers. Now, if you happen to be someone who lives in the vicinity of Parsons Prairie, then you know where this is coming from, because it wouldn't be possible without the help of Corinth United Methodist Church, where I am privileged to be the pastor. You can join us in worship on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock and 11-11. Uh, and if you want to know more about Corinth Church, just visit CorinthUMC.com. Now, I did say that this was brought to you by Corinth United Methodist Church, but I need you to know that uh, Corinth needs your support in order to provide ministries like this virtual Bible study. So if you want to worship God, if you want to show God your gratitude for all the blessings God has given you, perhaps even this virtual Bible study, then go to CorinthUMC.com, use the PayPal link, and uh, offer God some sign of your love and appreciation in the form of support for the ministries here. And for now, we ask that God bless us as we have encountered the living God through the love of the living Christ, as we have been refreshed by living water. Now I pray that you go to live in the hope of this encounter 
that you will experience the privilege of bearing the water of eternal life to parched world, knowing that God is a God of love and hope who is always going before you in all the different ways you may go. God bless you. Go in peace now to love and serve him. Amen. Thank you.